Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's a holiday weekend, which means we have a clips episode for you. It features artist Ebony G. Patterson. The New York Botanical Garden is presenting Things Come to Thrive in the Shedding in the Molting, a site-specific exhibition that places Patterson's work in New York Botanical Garden spaces. It's on view in the Bronx through October 22nd. This episode was taped in 2020 on the occasion of Ebony G. Patterson, While the Dew is Still on the Roses, a survey of work Patterson has made in the previous decade, from about 2010 to 2020, that was on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. Patterson's installations, tapestries, videos, and sculptures wield beauty to address disenfranchised communities, violence, masculinity, and the impacts of colonialism. While the Dew especially examined her consideration of gardens, which makes it especially appropriate to hear this week. Ebony G. Patterson, after the break. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Dwayne Linklater, My Mother's Side, Interrogating the construct and culture of museums, their conventions, and their historical exclusion of indigenous content, My Mother's Side features sculpture and video that focus on ancestral practices, digital translations of tribal objects held by museums, and a series of large-scale structures made with teepee poles. Get more information and plan your visit to see Dwayne Linklater, My Mother's Side, at mcachicago.org. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center. The captivating new exhibition, Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems, in dialogue, brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation. On view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org slash impressionist. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. 
Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott, on view through July 9th. Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Ebony G. Patterson, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. Let's talk about gardens. Gardens are prominent in, in, in your work, especially in this show. Did gardens come to interest you as a, a site, a physical material site that you can go to in the modern day world, or because of the metaphors that humans have attached to them over many millennia now? Initially, it was a metaphorical interest. And then as things have kind of progressed, actually, I would say post-show, I've become interested in thinking about the physical spaces of um, the physical space of gardens. There are things about it metaphorically that I've also considered in relation to, or I've also really been in, interested in relation to working class spaces and that so many times working class communities often have the name garden attached to it, or there's something that often harps to land or the grandness of, a, of land. So like there's estate gardens, trying to remember pastures, but something that somehow relates to a space that is green or a space that references a kind of bounty or beauty, but then is in, is in total contrast to that physical space and even in the way that those people who live in those spaces are treated. So for me, coming to gardens, I, I kind of entered in that way and then thought about these other lines within like previous work that I was considering. So for example, um, the statement if a tree falls in a forest doesn't make a sound, that phrase, you know, is is about lushness. But then at the same time, it's about witnessing. And so there, there's this question of who is a tree and who is the witness? And does a tree have value if nobody's there to see it at all? And does it mean that the tree doesn't exist just because nobody's able to see it? And so it, it's almost as if there are many threads for me that came from that, that then led me down this path to gardens. And I think a key, a really key opportunity that allowed me to explore that was when I was invited, when I had a show at the Museum of Art and Design, that had traveled from the Kola Art Museum in uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a show I had done called Dead Trees, which was curated by Karen Patterson, who was then curator at the Kola, who's now at the Fabric Workshop in Philly. That show traveled to MAD, and then Shannon Stratton, who was the then chief curator for MAD, she'd just come in, it was her first term, she had this project going on in the Tiffany galleries, uh, the jewelry galleries of MAD called The Artist's Point of View, 
where she invited artists to go through the jewelry collection and uh, curate a selection of objects. The first artist at the time did not do a, a kind of conventional hat. And I think realizing what the museum was proposing then gave me even more room to run to run wild within the vitrines and to think about their collection, but also to to center those conversations around much of what I was considering in my own practice. Based on the works that were in the show, which were a series of uh, floor-based works, I thought, what if I could take everything that was happening in the floor-based works and put it in these vitrines as if it was a tableau that the audience had to walk and discover and that somehow the jewelry from the collection became clues to telling us about a body that was shrouded in this overgrown vegetation of silk, silk plants um, that were poisonous. And as they would walk, then they would discover a body uh, kind of buried within the lushness. And the, the title of the project was called Buried Again to Carry On Growing, which actually came from the line of a poem um, called Brief Lives, which was written by Olive Senior. And Senior wrote, she, she wrote a suite of poems called Gardening in the Tropics. And someone had introduced that work to me while I was like making this, you know, like I've been making this, you know, making these works. And it's not so much that Senior inspired me as much as Senior gave me a language that I didn't have at the time to talk about the work. And Brief Lives in many ways has helped me to deal with the attempts of uh, talking about visibility and invisibility within a kind of post-colonial language, but then using the garden as the as a site within which all of this unfolds. Let me fill in a couple things. Olive Senior wrote for the catalog for this show uh, that's now at the Nasher and which originated at the Perez in Miami. There are a couple of things you mentioned there about gardens and your interest and how you have built within the concept um, that uh, I'd like to talk about. One of them is, is as you referenced, that you hide things uh, within gardens. You did this in the Dead Trees installation at MAD. It's in the most recent wall-mounted, mostly wall-mounted pieces you showed at Monique Maloche in Chicago at the end of last year? No, 2018. 2018. I'm all confused on years. How and why did, again, I'm not thrilled about the word hiding, but how, how and when did using gardens as, as a site of camouflage, whether it's for objects in Mad's collection, as you, you did in those vitrines um, in New York, or the way you hide bodies or body parts in the wall-mounted gardens. What about camouflaging or hiding things within gardens interested you? So, like, there are these two words that I often think about, and I think it, like, just goes back to when I was in the classroom teaching, you know, like, the difference between what it means to see and what it means to look. And, you know, the works are incredibly pretty in, in terms of the their materiality, right? And they're incredibly seductive. And so for me, I think since you don't like the word hide, there's also the word shrouding, uh, which may be better in terms of because it relates a lot more to vegetation. 
But yeah, so for me, it was, you know, like I'm, I'm always, I'm kind of interested in the, the buttocks between like the seduction of the material, but also to the toughness of the subject. So what does it mean then to challenge or what ways can I challenge the viewer when they come to the work? And there's always that person who just goes, oh my God, it's so pretty. And then I would say like, but is it really though? You know, so you have to. So in the seat, going back to those two words, seeing versus looking, the person who is seeing only sees that which is its surface, its prettiness. But the person who is looking has to peel beyond those layers, right? Go into the difficulty of those layers and then realize that there's something much more unfolding and that the beauty just in, in many ways just becomes a way of compelling you to look. One of the things that I've always thought is interesting, especially when we think about art and people who feel like, you know, like, well, I, I'm not an artist, so I don't really know this language. Like, we are we are visual creatures first, and we're way more visually intelligent than we tend to realize. But because, you know, the, the language of seeing involves abstraction, and that sometimes as it relates to abstraction, there's not necessarily, we don't necessarily need verbiage, you know, like, we don't seem to sometimes appreciate that visual language is language onto itself. And that's fine. And verbiage is a language onto itself. And that's fine. And, and it's OK that those two things don't always need to, to somehow intermingle and that we actually understand these cues and clues a lot more than we give ourselves. I don't want to use the word credit, but, you know, like we, we're way more, way more visually intelligent than we seem to realize. So then what does it mean then to use, say, for example, parts of a body shrouded in glitter and and rhinestones, but then that's next to figures that are headless or um, limbless, they're hollow, but you could see clothing. You know, like the, the fact that you can't like attach it to any one individual, it somehow seems to read as something communal, but then the land seems to be oozing body parts that, you know, and then it sits next to an owl or, you know, or, uh, or, or their children peeping through the heliconiad reeds that are falling. We're seeing like the eyes of children, you know, so there are these different ways that I'm, I'm using also to that, the concealment as a way of suggesting that there's a haunt within the beauty. So about that haunt within the beauty, you know, there are, well, there, there are at least two major mega famous global garden traditions. One is in the European Christian tradition, and it's of the garden as Eden, unspoiled, untrammeled, natural, wilds, and sinless, and then that it's humans who bring the possibility of sin and, and you know, um, haunts, to use your word, into, into the garden. Um, has that Christian Edenic tradition ever interested you? I mean, not particularly. I mean, I take advantage of the fact that, you know, like most of the images that we know, we know in like art history come from the church. And so I exploit those cues. But I feel like the garden that I'm interested in has to do with thinking about a space that's nurtured versus spaces that are not nurtured, you know, but it's all the same space. 
right? And that somehow we, we, we spend so much energy giving, giving resources to one section of that garden. And then uh, we marvel at how well it flourishes. And then we scoff at the, the other section of the garden that we give nothing to. And then we scoff at like, well, why can't you flourish? Why aren't you pulling, you know, like, why aren't you doing more? Why do you have so many weeds? But, you know, the thing that I say is that those weeds come for everyone, as much as one may try to contain and, but as much as one tends to keep putting in the resources on one end, you know, like if you're, if you're, if you're missing the tail of that garden, if you're missing the, the other, if you're not giving the same nourishment across the board, then of course there's going to be an imbalance. So the wildness in, in a kind of Edenistic space for me wasn't necessarily a, a first point of pivot. Although, I mean, I guess in, when we think about that video, Tobias Ostrander, who's the curator of the show, often talks about the bush cockerel. Well, the official, the official title is The Observation. He often refers to it as a space of Eden that you're observing these three figures in and you're not quite sure what's happening. Let me let me jump in for a quick second. The Observation, the Bush Cockerel Project, a fictitious historical narrative is, is a 2012 video you made that is included in the exhibition. It is, and it's seen as a starting point of the exhibition. But when I first started making that work, I wasn't particularly, I wasn't thinking about, thinking about it within the context of a kind of Christian language about an Eden. But I think conceptually, when, it, when, when I pull out things from the show, and I think about, say, for example, through the title, you know, like the title comes from a hymn called The Garden, which is essentially was a hymn that was written in tribute to the moment that Mary Magdalene had come to discover that Christ had left from the tomb. I think like that metaphorically, spatially, and the potential of that garden becomes more interesting to me because it's about time. It's about potential as opposed to in the Eden, while everything was great and wonderful, um, there was a banishing that happened. I think I'm interested in the garden both as a place of death, renewal, and possibility. It's also kind of reminding me of the next or the other broad global garden tradition I wanted to ask about, and that's the Islamic tradition. And so in the Islamic tradition of the garden, the physical earthly manifestation of the garden is sometimes even often walled. And I, I'm dead trees at, at MAD got me thinking of that, of course, because in that example, you contained the garden within these, these you know, eight foot tall vitrines. But in the Islamic tradition, the garden is uh, also very intently an earthly manifestation of paradise, the earthly manifestation of a site in and of and for the afterlife. And so you were just talking about gardens, not quite as a metaphor for death, but as a, as a, as a less pure space. And so did the Islamic tradition interest you or are there ways in which you thought of yourself as specifically addressing it? To be honest, I don't, I've not looked specifically at, at Islamic garden traditions, although much of what you are saying does, I feel, speak to some of, to much of what I've been unpacking and thinking about 
about the way gardens are employed in a kind of everyday life by people who are disenfranchised because it's not just sight as much as it is also clothing. It is not just sight as much as it also relates to a kind of celebration of the body by people and how they use uh, beauty as a way of carving themselves into spaces that, that they're denied access or denied power. That somehow by employing these tools or these aesthetics, it becomes a way of saying a, a, a kind of call and response and saying that you can't deny me and I will not allow you to deny me. Any other garden traditions? Oh, what's it? The um, Hanging Gardens of ba- and Babylon. So like the newer works for those who bear, bear witness, right? When I started making those works, well, so some of it started when I was in the studio, when I was still in Kentucky and then that summer, I got a residency to uh, the Rauschenberg Foundation and um, in Captiva, in Captiva Island. And essentially, I mean, Captiva is a garden. Like just it's it the 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 residency is essentially a studio and a garden, as far as I'm concerned. It depends on which side you're on. If you're on the side of the bay, but it's overgrown. It's you know. So like for me, it was like a perfect way of like it was perfect to have to think about much of what. I was trying to push formally within the work and actually physically living in that space. And then someone, one of the my colleagues had said to me, had I ever seen or had I ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of, of Babylon? And I said, no. And they said, so much of this reminds me of that. So I started there. I mean, I went like and watched a couple of documentaries that were available online, but just the phenomenon of it was really interesting to me structurally. And I think also in the long run helped in me thinking about what was happening spatially and also to the carry-ons from that into the space for the show, because there are all of these hanging elements kind of thinking about points in which the architecture somehow bleeds or opens up or is bursting with foliage and plants. So those are some of the the broader philosophical global garden traditions. Are there art historical gardens that have interested you? Because when I look at the work, there there are some painters who who come right to mind. One of them is Pierre Bernard, especially in his paintings of of the outdoors, frequently hides figures within lushness, frequently hides lushness within lushness, you know, kind of trees and flowers and and crops kind of blend together and only really pop out when you when you when you when you look carefully and i guess that goes in a different way for for edouard voyard whose interiors often people feature people blending seeming to blend into wallpaper and you kind of almost have to find them within the rectangle right and I mean, there's, well, there's also like the way that Matisse, for example, also uses space and pattern. That's always been interesting to me, the way the figure kind of collapses and falls back into the space. There's a kind of difficulty in terms of the way one reads Horizon in that. One's not quite sure where the body begins or even where the table begins or the, the objects that sit within what's being described as a room. Yeah, that's a, you know, I, I think probably one other reason I thought of Weard and, 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 and the way people blend into his wallpaper is because you've increasingly been using wallpaper. What is on the surface of that wallpaper? What imagery is on the surface of that wallpaper? And 
why have you come to like using it? So, okay. So when I first started using wallpaper, a lot of it had to do with like thinking about ideas around gender and thinking also too about 1960s feminist artists and the way they were used and the, well, and also more, even more specifically the pattern movement, thinking about how pattern was, was being used both as image, but then also too as material. But when it, came on initially into using pattern in my own work. It was a way of kind of referencing the domestic and using all of these kind of visual clues that reference the domestic as a way, as a way of referencing the feminine and raising questions about the masculine, somehow using feminine tropes as a way of measuring the way we were reading masculinity. But as, as things evolved in my practice and I became more and more increasingly interested in ideas around dress, I also became increasingly interested in thinking about how dress, how the pattern of dress then also related to the pattern of that space. And then the the potential of having the eye fall off or fall out of space and while they're falling out of the figure to me was also a, a way of also dealing with the language of visibility and invisibility, thinking about how could I um, somehow manifest that language, the language that, that's held within those two words visually? How could I flatten the figure so much so that it becomes almost to a point of illegibility as if the environment is somehow swallowing and consuming it, but then it rises again through like the appearance of like a single object, like a shoe. And so I was interested in pushing that visually more and more. And it's why not only are the backgrounds patterned, but also to the figures are also highly patterned in the same way. We also see that in um, a video such as Three Kings Weep from 2018 and in earlier works um, on paper, such as Entourage from, from 2010. You know, I just mentioned two, two works that deal with, with men and beauty. Not all of your work that engages with people is about men and beauty, but a, a lot of it is. You're, you're, you more often address the relationship between men and beauty than you do between women and beauty. Why men and the male address of beauty and projecting beauty onto male figures, whether on paper or mannequins, for example? Why men? So initially for me, I think a lot of it also just started from, a well, when I was in grad school, a lot of the work that I had made was very autobiographic and it was very much about me. But at the same time, I, I was still very interested in these conversations around beauty and the body. And I had read an article about men lightening their skins as a way of eluding the police. And I just thought, what a jarring, what a jarring image to think about uh, men employing a, employing a practice essentially that was primarily done by women uh, as a way of shifting their, their image so that somehow they could assume a new identity so that they could not be found by the police. Now, while, while I had already been seeing skin lightning at home at the turn of the millennia, I saw it being practiced on a really small scale among young men. Um, and at the time they were primarily dancers. What was also interesting to me on the back end of that was that while the skins were also shifting on the men, so were the garments. 
And so this idea about what was being understood as masculine at the time was was shifting. There was a language of femininity that was somehow or the yeah, the language of the feminine was somehow coming in to redefine the macho. Uh, but then the other thing that I also I also also found really interesting is that thinking about the way that, you know, like the black male body, there's the way the black male body is weaponized in public space. Now, this is not to suggest that the black female body isn't. I think that there's a certain space that that just by virtue of being male, that one is not allowed to go. You know, so um, because of uh, because of social expectations. So, like, for example, on um, the stereotypes that are loaded on to men about like, well, you know, men don't cry. And then what does it mean, for example, to tell a boy, a child that he's to, you know, toughen up men don't cry and, and crying is such a you know it's just a basic human thing um and what does it mean to tell people that they can't be the full the full spance of their of their humanity and what does it mean then to also set up parameters in terms of like what you're allowed to wear versus what you're not allowed to wear and what does it mean in this time when um those borders or those or those boundaries are being are being challenged or questioned and so i feel so in my earlier uh earlier parts of my practice i was also thinking about like so many times what has happened historically is that there were things that would have been masculine and then they happened on the female body and then somehow they became anti-masculine so if we think about like the history of the earring the earring actually started on a male body and then it shifted to the female body and then somehow it no longer was employed by the male body anymore and then it became popular again on the male body but then it became questionable so a uh, questionably in the sense of questions about one's gender, because it was something that had no at this at that time become popular amongst women to the point where no, it's no longer in question. So what does it mean? Uh, you know, like what are these parameters or these kinds of boundaries that we set up around expectations? And what does that mean for bodies that are that are vulnerable and that are seen as threat? when the full spectrum of that is just not allowed to them because uh, there are certain expectations that are immediately put on them because of a kind of systemic negotiation or understanding about what we're supposed to be and who we are in all of that. Is any of that related to how you use birds in the work, such as roosters or owls? Actually, some of the the decisions to use birds, so we're going to go back now to Christian symbols, but some of the use of, you know, like some of the use of the birds or the owls in the work, actually, again, just pulling on um, narrative metaphors. So, for example, the rooster, for me, has been a reference for a symbol of betrayal. Um, so, for example, Christ says to Peter, you should deny me three times before the cock crows, right? But then at the same time, the rooster is also seen as a symbol of masculinity. Your work for about a decade now, for almost a decade, has been very, very bright. Lots of decorative materials of such, such as, as glitter, beads. I noticed somewhat amused, amusingly <laughs> that your, uh, the list of media of works in, in your uh, installations sometimes just includes the word embellishments, almost, almost as if you're throwing up your hands going, you know, it's all in there. Yeah. <laughs> what motivated you or gave you permission to open up the, the craft kit in the way that you did? Was Did that come from art? Did that come from outside art? 
you know, I feel like that came from both, to be quite honest. I think that, you know, I remember the first time I used a craft paper in the work. And, you know, like at first I was really afraid uh, to use that kind of material, even though at the time I had an understanding that, you know, like that all of these materials were totally accessible to me and that I could use, you know, it's not what it is, it's how you use it. You know, like I, I, I went to school, my undergraduate years were in Jamaica. And so, you know, um, craft has a very different meaning when you come, you know, like when you when you end up coming from a when you come from a place where craft essentially means gifts for tourists, which has a very different meaning here. You know, like there is that. But then there's also the other stuff, you know, like for my time and on and as an undergraduate, like you are not allowed to use certain colors in your, in, in the palette, because, because those things that would have, those colors would have brought you too close to what would have been considered tourist that. And so, you know, like at that was serious, had a certain, had a certain kind of coloring. And it's funny because at the time I'd already started using things like pattern within, I had a pattern in the work, but it was functioning in a slightly different slightly different way. Anyway, so this is just before I started doing the heads and talking about lightning. I did a small series just after graduate school, after doing a series of vaginas, and then went on and did a series of breasts. You know, I was a typical young female, female, a typical young woman, woman artist. So I was in Michael's one day, just kind of perusing. And then I saw a sheet of scrapbooking paper that was a damask pattern that was so it was a, a floral pattern of, there were red flowers with green leaves and um it was quite beautiful and I was compelled to take it home and so I I did and then I ended up cutting out cutting out those patterns and then using them as a way of suggesting that in the, because the, the, the images of these breasts that I was making, is essentially they were all decaying, but then I was using the flowers as a way of suggesting that some life was like sprouting from this. Now, what's funny, Tyler, is that I looked at this work recently, like maybe about a month or two ago, I stumbled across an image from this body of work, which then made me go and look some more and realizing that, oh my God, look at the connection between these things and like much of what I'm thinking about now and even what I've been making, you know, post post having um, hung uh, the show at the Perez. That it, it really reminded me that, so, uh, like, that as an artist, even when you walk away from something, even if it was something that only happened for a small moment in the practice, that somehow that vocabulary finds its way back into the work sometimes in one way or, or one way or another. So after using that craft paper, it was just like, well, let's go. I want to go back to something you said a moment ago. You were talking about how uh, women's bodies had been in the work, I think probably in the late 2000s, in the late aughts, just after you finished or maybe while you were still in grad school at WashU in St. Louis. You made a piece back then called Untitled 200 Clitorises. That is a floor 
sitting piece it's not it's not on a wall it's, no it's, it just sits on a it like it sits on a pedestal so first where where did that piece come from what were you engaging with why 200 uh, yeah i think 200 i think at the time the, the number really didn't have any significance i think i was just trying to amass a pile and in the end it turned out to be 200 but at the time I was thinking of a lot about well one beauty and the grotesque are definitely languages that I was interested in but I was also thinking about like the objectness of women's bodies you know like the, the idea that we contain and hold things which are other bodies and yeah and so at the time my point of ref the, the point of reference that I was making had to do with what was was the clitoris, the labia, and the vagina. But yeah, and so I I I ended up casting all of these. First, I casted them in, and I think it was like a white silicone. And then I thought, oh, if I casted them all in red, it would also somehow reference flesh. But it was also a way of also referencing a kind of violence that happens to the body. And it was interesting that when people would see the work, they would always say to me, oh, at first I thought it was a pile of flowers. And then when I looked, but when I looked closely, I realized those are not flowers. And then they would say, they looked at the label and realized what they were and then looked back at the work and then they couldn't unsee what they saw. What, what made me think of it was that you were talking about how references to bodies and people carried forward into the work even after you'd visited Michael's and had an epiphany. Because, and I wonder if there's a relationship between Untitled 200 Clitorises from, from 2008 and a 2015 piece that's in the show called Found Among the Reeds, Dead Trees, which has... Uh, on the ground underneath the wall-mounted portion of the piece, a little pile of forms that isn't totally dissimilar from the forms you made for 200 clitorises. Yeah, the, the, and the pile on the floor, it's their little, their shape, like the generic shape, a generic shape of leaves that were all knitted. But yeah, I see, I, there, there are moments, there definitely, there's definitely been a consistency in like engaging with piles, but piles as it really, in the, I feel like for me in the more recent work or in the, in the work postgraduate school, whenever I would put a bunch of objects within a work, um, quite often it was a way of referencing pictorially something falling out. Like I was always thinking about ways in which to reference what was happening within the moment that was hung on the wall. Um, but then also to another way of referencing a memorial. Yeah, I mean the the clitorises, I guess I could I I could see how there is a uh, because of the ambiguity that happens initially in the pile and also to in that kind of I guess because they're also all red so it makes it, it makes a kind of flattening of that form and it, that it somehow it, its legibility becomes a little clearer in the more that you look and I think that's something actually that just also relates a lot to what happens in the in that work in in particular um, that the there is a female body that's 
inside uh, that particular work, uh, but it does become very difficult to read, and it and it, and it actually occupies quite a significant chunk of space. It's a the figure actually sits diagonally across the middle of the work, and what what makes you realize that potentially could be a female body are the hats. I'm using female in parentheses here or the shoes or the shoes that are at, you know, at the at the base of the work that's on the wall. Which are on top of jewelry that we typically read as female. Right. Exactly. Wait, I think there's also something that's really important. You know, like earlier you said something about you said that big chunk of my practice the last 10 years has often pictured men as a center of subject. But I think it's also important to acknowledge, too, that as much as the, the subject or the most central subjects pictorially or in its immediacy have have been men, that, that the language of the feminine is also incredibly present through and through that. So to say it's it's about it's to say sometimes singularly that it's only about this one thing too is also can also get a can also be a little tricky too. Yeah, no there's absolutely a series of questions about uh what we associate with what genders that run run through the work. Last thing I want to ask about about the gardens, how often are your flowers specific and intentional, not just in terms of the species of the flower, if flowers have species, if I'm using the right word, but also in terms of whether you're, you are, are you using certain flowers to access certain traditions or metaphors? I mean, in the beginning, it was simply, so for example, when I started with the MAD project, which many of these plants actually are, or many of the flowers actually came from that list, all the flowers had to, they were only supposed to be poisonous, poisonous plants. So in the, in the, or, and, and poisonous, you know, poisonous could mean poisonous to ingestion, poisonous to touch, poisonous to ingestion for a pet, but not necessarily poisonous to ingestion for a, um, for a human. Um, so I played really broadly with that one because of like, well, you know, there's only so many or so much access one's going to be able to get of poisonous silk plants, you know? So there are just some things because of, and, and poisonous and those, and flowers are usually, the flowers that we found that were poisonous, that were available in silk, quite, they were like common things that one would associate with like that one would have in one's home, for example. So like a hydrangea has poisonous properties, birds of paradise, poppies, calla lilies, most, a, a number of lilies um, have poisonous properties to them. The elephant ear, also another, has poisonous properties. The heart of Jesus, that's another one, also has, a, uh, has poisonous properties. Everybody knows about ivies, you know, poison, uh, not all ivies, but poison ivy. But then you have some plants that are, say, for example, in the case of the, 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 what we call the graves affectionately, which is the work moments we cannot bury that have glass body parts, as well as objects that would belong to the body, like a pair of shoes, a hat, a toy, those mounds are all covered in carnations and roses. 
So in looking, say, for example, at street side images of uh, street side memorials, you know, like when a community will come out and uh, take over a street to mark to mark the space for our loved ones. I was looking at like the common like common flowers that would end up being used in those memorials. And a lot of them just also has, has a lot to do with like accessibility and also to just what's, you know, what what's also inexpensive. So I, I use the roses and carnations primarily and and also to those two flowers are also associated with the funerary as points of reference for, for that work. But then inside them, those glass plants, so like the poppies, the calla lilies, the anthraniums, the bird of paradise, the torch ginger, those plants all have poisonous properties as well as the elephant ear. So there is some consideration in terms of the kinds of flowers that have been used within this exhibition. And much of that started first uh, thinking about Matt. Finally, We've been talking about beauty and high-key beauty and bright beauty, but I'd also like to ask about a a kind of winking moment of, of, of grit in the work. And this goes back to the early 2010s when in at least two works, The Passing, Dead Daddy from 2010 to 13, and in Entourage, which I mentioned a moment ago from 2010, you use a pink cinder block a cinder block that, that was painted pink, I should, I should, I should add. So why was uh, a cinder block interesting to you? Why was painting it pink interesting to you? And are you done with it or might it come back someday? <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it will or not. I never say anything is done. You know what I mean? Like people always ask me, like I've, I've, I've been asked questions about like series of works. Some works, the series just seems so short. Uh, does it mean that, you know, like, I missed that. And I go, well, who said it's gone? So yes, that's my response to that. Yeah. So the cinder block for me was kind of, was a way of referencing the street corner because I was kind of thinking about how the corner, uh, thinking about the street corner as a, as a masculine space, um, as a space where men end up holding um, court or um, conversation in a neighborhood. And then I was thinking about like, what does that then also mean when, but what, but what's the street corner's relationship to the domestic space? So I was thinking actually of the street corner as an extension of the domestic space because it is, because it relates to a communal space. And so in spraying that pink, I was making a, a visual gesture that that this too is feminine, that an occupying of the space, which does seem seem from the outset masculine because it 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 because it's occupied by men, is too also feminine, since the domestic space has often be, been described as feminine space. Ebony G. Patterson, thanks so much. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.